bulletin. <laughs> it's right here. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Glad to see everybody. A couple of announcements we have coming up this week. Uh, on Wednesday night, this Wednesday, we have our regular prayer service at 6, uh, discussing what is a healthy church member. So come out for this last session on church membership this Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday, April 19th, we're actually going to be uh, meeting at Oak Grove Baptist Church at 6.30. So we're, if you come here at 6, you might be the only one here, you know. So that's uh, April 19th, Wednesday at 6.30 at Oak Grove Baptist Church. Uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, is going to give a bit, kind of a State of the Union address of what's going on with the, the Southern Baptist Convention and Southeastern, and we'll have a time of question and answer period to follow. Um, so come if you're, if you're interested in that. It would be a good time of fellowship and, and learning about what's going on in our convention in, in the school in Wake Forest. And then one last thing, at the end of the month, uh, this month, April 30th, Sunday, we're having our uh, quarterly uh, Lord's Supper and bit quarterly business meeting following the worship service. And so uh, stay tuned what we have going on um, in the bulletin and online on our Facebook to get involved, see how you can get involved with our church. Um, I want to open us up in, with a, a scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you. You are so gracious and wonderful to us. You have sent your Son to die in our place. And God, we we praise you and we celebrate his resurrection today, this Resurrection Sunday. And God, we look forward to the day where we will be raised to new life and at the final day. We'll be raised to eternal life and the new heavens and new earth. And God, you defeated death and sin. And God, we, we ha that is our hope. And God, help us to live in that hope each and every day. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth today. God, thank you for allowing us to gather as your people and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. Stand with us as we worship together. We are going to be singing hymn number 367. Christ the Lord is risen today, ah, hallelujah, sons of men and angels say. 
Rejoice, rejoice, O oh Christian. 
Stanowski, I'm a deacon here at Union Chapel Baptist Church. I wanted to start off by reading John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete this is my command love one another as i have loved you no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what i command you i do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing i have called for friends called you friends because i have made knowing to you everything i have heard from my father you did not choose me, but I choose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time of praise and worship. Thank you for the unconditional love you shower upon us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to redeem us through his sacrifice. Your perfect love and mercy draw us together. It gives us the strength and courage to carry out your great commission. We ask that you would give us the courage to use our talents you have bestowed upon us to help spread the gospel. We pray that, you would be, that we would be unified in our mission and work as one body for your glory. Dear Lord, we ask that you help us to love one another as you love us. Help us to be kind and merciful as you are kind and merciful. With your help, Lord, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. We love you, Lord, with all our heart and soul. We are ever thankful for all your gifts you have bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and continue worshiping Christ. We're singing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us. 
sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live there in the ground his body Goodness 
stands above the stormy trial who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore the rock of christ oh sing I meant to mention this when I first began, but I was so excited to get into the service. Uh, yesterday, we had our Easter egg hunt, and behind me, you'll see we have a uh, backdrop. This is the stone, and this is the tomb, and so we had a little skit, and as I told the kids uh, yesterday, I said, put on your imagination goggles and imagine that this is a, the tomb, right? And so if there's any kids in here, you want to come up after the service, not right now, and you can look and see Jesus' grave clothes as depicted you know, in there. So that's what that is if you were, if you didn't put two and two together. So today we'll be in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, the king priest. So about eight months ago, I preached on Psalm 110. And in that passage, I explained how Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Specifically, how Jesus is the forever priest like Melchizedek. As Psalm 110 verse 4 says, you are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. And so today we're going to continue our series through the book of Genesis. Uh, we get to look at the background story of this guy named Melchizedek. And we get to look at uh, in more detail in Genesis 14. 
And so I've chosen to preach on Genesis 14 on Easter Sunday, on the day we emphasize and celebrate Jesus' resurrection for two main reasons. First, uh, we may have some coming to our worship gathering for the first time or the first time in a long time, maybe since last Easter or, uh, you know, a long time ago. So I have you in mind, and I want you to experience our typical preaching message where I would preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And so beginning in, at the end of January, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis. And so today we come across Genesis 14. And so I wanted everyone to experience and know the importance of preaching all of God's Word, not just the verses we like or the easy verses, because many of you, if you've been here, would know we've been through some very difficult verses together. Uh, difficult for interpretation, uh, difficult to uh, how do we understand it, and how also just challenging for our, our own souls. But it's all been very good, because it's all God's Word, from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you're, you're new here today, I wanted you to know that emphasis and get kind of uh, what we typically do on a, a normal Sunday to Sunday. Um, and if you have any questions about why we believe the Bible is God's word or what is the Bible, uh, if, if you're new to church at all, just I would love to talk to you more about that. So stay, stay afterward. I can discuss that with you. And so that's for the guests. Second reason uh, that we're preaching Genesis 14 on Resurre Resurrection Sunday uh, because it does, in fact, point to Jesus' victory over the grave. And all the benefits that I've just mentioned for the guest are exemplified for the regular member who's been here week after week. You have had Genesis 1 through 13 as the background. You have a frame of, refer frame of reference. You have gotten to know the characters that we are going to be discussing in Genesis 14. Uh, nevertheless, even if this is your first time here, or maybe even if your first time in a church gathering, I'm going to present Genesis 14 in a way that you can understand it as well. Um, and, and I pray uh, that you will be changed by God's word today. And so we have three main points as we look and separate Genesis 14. First, we have spiritual victory in Jesus. Spiritual victory in Jesus. Second, God is king over all. Third, Jesus is the ultimate king priest. And we'll specifically look at Psalm 110 in Hebrews chapter 6 and following. So, without further ado, here is God's word beginning in Genesis 14, verse 1. In those days, King Amphril of Shinar, King Arioch of Eleazar, King Shedalur Amar of Elam, and King Tadal of Goam, waged war against King Barah of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shanab of Admah, and King Shemeber of Zeboam, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zor. If I had perhaps a better speaking voice, this would sound like the beginning of an epic movie, right? Uh, like Lord of the Rings. This is an epic story with epic names, sometimes hard to pronounce, of people long ago. And we learn in verse 3 that all of this happened near the Dead Sea in the Middle East around modern-day Israel. And in verse 4, this, was, this war was a result of rebellion against the other kings. And then if you jump down to verse 10, if you're following along in your own Bibles, verse 10 says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they lost and fled to the mountains, leaving their cities unprotected. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they lost, and so they have left, abandoned their cities, 
And then we read in verse 11 about the conquering kings. It says, The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions. For he was living in Sodom, and they went on. So this is where we connect the story of Genesis 13, and before that, where we were following last week, when we looked at Abram. How God chose Abram, chose to bless him, chose to, and promised to make him into a nation, promised to give him land with descendants. He will even make Abram a great king with a great name. And specifically, God will bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse Abram. In other words, God will be there for Abram. He will bless his friends and he will fight against Abram's enemies. In other words, God has got Abram's back. And that's what we're about to see happen today. Because these kings, they just took Abram's nephew, Lot. What do you think is about to happen? We, we see in verse 13, one of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew. I just do want to pause here. Uh, this title, the Hebrew, is the first time this title is used. It's not very common, actually, in the Old Testament. It's used about 33 times later on. And this is the only time it is used in conjunction with Abram. What does Hebrew mean? Why does he call him this? It's used frequently uh, in reference, uh, used by non-Israelites. So people not, that are not native to Israel. So a foreigner talking about someone who is an Israelite. So it's, it's used, the Hebrew is used primarily as an ethnic term to say who, what group of people they are from. Because... Um, Abram, one of Abram's ancestors is named Eber, which in a different ancient language would sound similar to Hebrew, Hebrew, Eber. You can see kind of the similarities. So that's where the name Hebrew comes. It's from Abram's ancestor, Eber. And so they're denoting him as this ethnic per people from this particular place in this genealogy. In case you were wondering, <laughs> side note. And so, what do you think Abram's going to do with this information? He heard about his nephew, Lot. So, Abram and Lot, we learned, Lot looked at last week, um, they had their disagreements in chapter 13. Um, they had to separate. They, had, they, were, they were just getting too, uh, their lanes were getting too big and people getting too big. So, they ended, but they ended on good terms. And Lot is still Abram's family. Uh, so, what's about to happen is a lot like the movie Taken. And instead of a 70-year-old Liam Neeson chasing the kings down, we will have a 75-year-old Abram chasing these kings down, which is pretty impressive. Uh, Abram's still uh, going after these guys, but he's not going alone, as we see in verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against him by night defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobab, Hobab, to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and other people. I'm telling you, this would make a great movie. This would be an action movie. So we see here God has Abram's back, and thus Abram's family is also protected. And with just 318 men, he was able to rescue Lot from these four kings and their armies. It's really uh, impressive. It's really remarkable. The, the small amount of fighting men here shows it was by God's power the victory came about. 
Um, but as we have seen and will continue to see, God works through people. He works through his people. God could have just cursed the kings. Remember, we looked at when um, Abram's wife was taken by Pharaoh. How did he get her back? Pharaoh, um, Pharaoh was cursed by God, and he just gave Sarah back. So God could have just cursed these kings and their soldiers and given Lot back. But he wanted to work through Abram here. God works through his people. And we see God working through Abram. Abram uses his wisdom. He gets these trained men for this specific task, and they launch a secret attack at night. And so what are some things we can learn from this episode here? We're going to look at four things we can learn from this, this narrative. Number one, we see that God is faithful to his promises to be with and protect Abram and his family. This didn't mean that they wouldn't face any hardships, but it meant that God would see them through it. The same is true for those in Christ. Those who have trusted in Jesus as their God, their Savior, and their King, He promises to be with you, to empower you, to protect you. And like Abram and like Lot, that doesn't mean that you won't face hardships. But God can see you through it. He can bring you the victory. Even when the situation seems impossible, God can make a way. The second thing we learn, we are to trust in God. We are to trust in his power. We are to trust in his timing. And we are to depend on God in prayer. All that is true, and he also wants us to act. He doesn't want us to stay passive. God wants to work through us. Given the circumstance, there may be times for patience. There may be times to wait. But there are going to be many times where we need to take action, that you have to do something. Trusting in God's power to work through you should empower you to be courageous. Trusting in God's power to work through you should allow you to step out in faith. Do something maybe you're not comfortable with. God can work miracles without your help, for sure. He doesn't need us, but he has chosen to use us. He wants to work through us. God, uh, from the beginning, God entrusted Adam and Eve with authority over creation. God has entrusted us with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's entrusted to us to share with others. God didn't bring you through that hardship just for your benefit. God didn't teach you that lesson just for you. He showed you mercy. He showed you grace so that you could show mercy and grace to others. So that you could help someone else. That's how God works. He wants to work through you. The third thing is that we learn here in this episode is you might be asking, talking a lot about victory. We see Abram's victory here. What kind of victory are we talking about? What can God bring about through me? What does it look like for God to be bring me through something? Those are kind of vague, cliche sentiments. So what does that mean? In the case of Abram, he was physical safety. Physical possessions, physical warfare we saw. But underlying all the physical, all the, the physical warfare and physical possessions, there's something spiritual going on. Because think about it. None of this warfare, none of this evil, none of this sin would have happened if there wasn't evil in the hearts of men. Right? There's something spiritual at the core of all of this. And so all the physical battles in the Old Testament point to the greater spiritual battle behind the scenes the spiritual battles that we face every day. 
Thus, the physical battles in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, those physical battles allow us to see God working, see Him, see how He has won the victory for His people. And it looks forward to God's victory in the spiritual life as well. This is what Ephesians in the New Testament talks about. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having, been, having prepared everything to take your stand. So this is the kind of battles we are up against. Spiritual battles of things like unbelief. Spiritual battles of lack of faith in God. Spiritual battles of believing the lies of Satan instead of the truth of God. That is why he tells us in verse 14 of Ephesians 6, Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. So how do you arm yourself against lies? Lies like you're not good enough or no one loves you or your sins can't be forgiven or this pain will never end. We can arm ourselves with the truth that we are made in God's image, that we do have value, that through faith in Christ, you are adopted into God's family. Through Christ, God is your loving Father. Nothing you can do can separate you from His love. Because through repentance and faith in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. You don't need 318 trained men to fight your battles. That's not the kind of battle we're fighting. You need the truth of God to begin to fight your spiritual battles. It begins with the truth of God. We need the spiritual armor of God, which you can read more about in the following verses of Ephesians chapter 6. And if you want to, come to our vacation Bible school this summer. That will be the theme. It will be the armor of God. And it's important to teach our kids these truths. From young, as soon as they get here, we need to teach them how to be prepared for the war, for the battle. Because we prepare our kids for all kinds of things. But are we training them for the most important battle? The battle that they will face every day and will have eternal consequences. Because we are tempted to focus on just the temporary and physical training and neglecting the spiritual training. So let's not do that. Let's focus on the spiritual battle we have. As we turn to our, our fourth application from this episode here, fourth and last application of this episode, the spiritual victories we can have is focused on our sin, spiritual victories over our sin, over temptation. These are only possible through being united to Jesus' victory over sin and death. So if you want to have victory over your sin, if you want to have victory over death, that is only possible through being united to Jesus because he is the one who's defeated sin and death. Through faith in him, we are united to him. That is what our baptism symbolizes. When we are baptized as Christians, we are confessing that we are unified with Jesus. Romans 6, 4 explains it this way. It says, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We die to our sin. We die to our old self. We are buried with Christ. But since we're united with him, we also are raised with him. We are given new life, a new heart that seeks to follow after God. It's kind of like this. Uh, my brother-in-law, he's not, he's not here today, so I can say this story. My brother-in-law has been talking about going skydiving recently. And when you first go skydiving, you can't just jump out of the airplane by yourself. That would be crazy, right? <laughs> Instead, you have to be strapped to a professional. That makes more sense. And that it would, it's still crazy, nonetheless. <laughs> you are connected to this other person. That person is, is in charge of the parachute. He has literally your life in his hands. If you come disconnected from him, you're not going to make it. You are holding on to him for dear life. In a similar way, we are called to hold on and trust in Jesus for our lives, to be united to him. We are connected to him through faith. And the good news is, once we repent and have faith in Jesus, Jesus is holding on to us too, and he won't let us go, right? So we are united to him in his death, and we will also be united to Jesus in his life because Jesus has won. He has defeated death, which leads to our second point, section, section today. God is king over all. In verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14. After God's victory through Abram and the rescue of Lot, we read this. After Abram returned from defeating Shadolamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went up to meet him in the Shavah Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So, Abram defeated the king of Sodom's enemies. And now in this scene, we have Abram standing before the king of Sodom and another king that we've never been introduced to before. This is the first time he's introduced in the Bible. A king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him at this point. We, all we know is, one, his name. Melchizedek in Hebrew means, my king is righteous. So his name is a reflection on who God is. God is his king, and he believes that God is righteous. God being our king, God being righteous, is one of the core tenets of Christianity. That we believe God is our king, that he is our everything, that we submit to him. Second, that he is righteous. He does nothing wrong. There is no darkness in him. There is no sin in him. Everything that happens that he does is right. He is righteous. Second, notice that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem, or Shalom in Hebrew, means peace. And this place of peace is associated with Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? This Jerusalem, Salem, will become the holy city, the nation of Israel, the special dwelling place of God, the location of the temple in the Old Testament. <clears throat> While God will make Abram's name great, as we saw last week, meaning that Abram will be a king, we see here the first king of Jerusalem, the first king of God's holy city, Melchizedek. Not only was he the first king, he was also the first priest. Before Aaron, before the Levitical priesthood, later established in the Old Testament, he is the first priest. A priest in the Old Covenant would be the one who would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They would upkeep the temple. They would teach people about God, pray for, and bless the people. 
Uh, this king priest of God, Melchizedek, brings refreshments to Abram after his victory, unlike the king of Sodom, who does not bring Abram anything. And also unlike the king of Sodom, this king priest of God blesses Abram, as we see in verse 19. It says, He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed by God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. So in this blessing, we see that God is declared not only as the king of creation, but the very creator of all creation. God has the ultimate authority. He is the God Most High. He has created it all. We also see that it is confirmed that it was God working through Abram to defeat his enemies. We see that God, it was him who handed over your enemies to you. Yes, he had trained men. Yes, he used his wisdom to attack at night. But it was God who ultimately won the victory. In response to this king priest of God, Abraham responds accordingly. Verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram gave 10% of all his things to the Lord by giving it to God's priest, Melchizedek. Notice, this was not a command. This would, Melchizedek said, didn't say, do this. This was just a response that Abram did. Abram wanted to dedicate his possessions to God, declaring that it was by God's grace that he had all these things. It was declaring that he honored God with his possessions by giving it to his priest. Later, Abraham's descendants in the nation of Israel would not be so generous uh, with their money, with their talents and their time. And so God would give them a law to teach them how to be generous. He would give them laws to how much to give. They didn't, they didn't know what Abraham knew, that it was by God's grace they had any of their possessions. They were to honor God with them and honor, and honor God's priests. In the new covenant, through faith in Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we give to the Lord like Abram did, not under compulsion, not because of guilt, not even because of there's a law to do it. We're not under the old covenant laws anymore. We give, we are generous because we are a new creation in Christ. We have God's law written on our heart. We recognize that all we are, all that we have, are the Lord's. We just have it on loan from him. Who are we to say what we can do with it? We are to honor him and give him the glory with all the things that we have. And I thank God for our church's generosity. You have been so generous with your time, talents, and money. By giving to the general budget here, you support local missions, international missions. Your giving supports those in need. It allows us to gather here and worship the Lord together. And that's not even including what you give above and beyond that to special giving like the Andy Armstrong missions offering for North American missions. That's uh, going on uh, this week. That's been going on for the past couple weeks. So keep up the good work. For the mission of God, depending on him every step of the way. And now as we turn to the last point today, we see that Jesus is the ultimate priest king. So after the blessing Melchizedek, he get, uh, Melchizedek gives Abram, uh, we, hear, we hear no more of this guy. Who, where does Melchizedek go? We don't know. This very important figure, the first king priest of God, has come and gone. Right? God in his wisdom raised up this king priest sent him to Abram in this manner to prepare a way for the greater king priest, Jesus. King David would later write in Psalm 110, 
And this Psalm 110 serves as kind of a stepping stone to the New Testament, to a pointer to the Messiah, to the Savior, of what Jesus would be like, the ultimate king priest. Specifically, he says in Psalm 10, verse 4, talking about the Messiah, God says, You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Mount Kizedek. So he knew something was special about this king priest and that the Messiah would be like him. For while the Old Testament only mentions Melchizedek twice, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament mentions his name eight times, and he is the focal point of almost three chapters. It explains how Jesus is the forever king priest like Melchizedek. We'll be in Hebrews for the rest of our time together if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 19. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Without father, jump down to verse 3. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So what does it mean that Jesus is a priest forever? Well, in the Old Testament, and really any other priest or person throughout time, they don't live forever, right? At many points, the people of Israel needed new priests because the other ones have passed away. While Jesus was a priest that also died, he was unlike any priest ever before because he came back to life and continues to live forever. That is why we emphasize and desperately depend on Jesus' resurrection. We need him to be alive. We need a forever priest. We need someone who defeated sin and death. We need someone who has the victory in our place. No one else will do. Nothing else can save us. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection. As the book of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 7.24, says, But because he remains forever... He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Since Jesus was raised from the dead and lives for eternity, he is able to be our priest forever. And we need this kind of priest so that we can be saved, so that he can intercede for us. Jesus is the person between us and God the Father. He stands before him and pleads our case. And what does he plead? Jesus is not trying to explain our sin away or trying to explain to God the Father that we're not that bad. No, he's saying, I've died for their sins, and I'm here to show you that I've, I'm the living proof of that sacrifice. I've been raised from the dead. I'm the living proof. They are clean. They are forgiven. I have died for them. He is the evidence in the courtroom that says we are forgiven. His resurrection from the dead shows God the Father that our sins have been accounted for. So Jesus is our forever priest that brings us salvation. Again, there is no other intercessor, no other person, no human priest, no pastor. You can't be your own advocate. You can't be your own lawyer for this. Everyone needs Jesus as their high priest. Oftentimes, people try to be their own priest, try to be their own savior, try to earn God's forgiveness, that's not possible. We need a forever priest. 
We need Jesus' sacrifice so that we can be forgiven. And all of this is leading to one major point, that Jesus brings a better covenant with better promises, a better victory than what Abram had. Hebrews 8.10 says it this way, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. This is the new covenant Jesus brings. These are the promise. These promises are all made possible because Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life, obedient unto death on a cross and was raised again and appointed the high priest of God. All we have to do to be enter into this covenant promise, to get these promises, we do have to act. We have to do something. We have to have faith in Jesus. You can't earn it. You must say that I can't earn it. I can't do anything. I must trust and tr- be connected and united to Jesus alone. That's how you enter into the covenant. So as they come up for the song of response, I want you to respond to God today. He has spoken to you through his word. He has shown you something true about himself. He has shown you uh, something true about himself and something true about yourself. Perhaps you have been living a life of defeat, seeing every circumstance, seeing every scenario as an obstacle instead of an opportunity for God to work through you to bring something beautiful for his glory. Perhaps you've been living a life of defeat in some sin. Perhaps you have let the sin of lust, the sin of pride, the sin of greed, the sin of apathy and laziness win. The call today is to repent and to trust in Christ. Depend on him for the forgiveness of your sins and fight the good fight of faith, trusting that he will give you the victory. Now, we won't win every battle. We won't win every battle over our sin, over evil, but we are called to get back up every day and fight against it. And as we do this, as we fight and have faith in God, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and he will win the war. Now I'll be down at the front if you have anything you want to talk about, if you want to pray about anything, I'd love to talk with you. Just let us stand together and praise our great Savior and King Priest Jesus who has risen from the grave and will return victoriously. Stand with us as we 